I've got lots of ladies with me and I'd like to welcome Francine and Jessica and especially Angela. Angela Flournoy is here for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Angela, and I got that wrong, didn't I? You raised your eyebrows, didn't I? No, that was perfect. Oh, good. Angela grew up in America, but not in Detroit. And that's where her book, The Turner House, is set. Now, Angela, have Detroit people criticised your writing of their history? No, um, it's a bit, been a big surprise. That was one of the things um, that I think was why I was so slow and careful with writing the novel because um, it's a place, Detroit is a place I've visited throughout my life, but it's not a place that I am from. And it is also a place that has had uh, a certain kind of narrative uh, reach the wider world. And um, it's one of uh, kind of despair and tragedy and its best days being behind it and people think of like the grittiness like Eminem's movie Eight Mile and I know that a lot of my family members thought that was not a complete or whole or fair picture and so I wanted to do better than that and um, it's been great. Um, I was just in Michigan for a month all over the state and several times in Detroit in May and um, I've gone several times since my book has been out and it's always overwhelmingly positive. It's really great. Well, you write the truth, I think. The things I knew, I knew about the car industry. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about the salt mine. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't either. Um, That was one of the things I just kind of jumped down a rabbit hole of research when I first decided that I wanted to really think about the early days of uh, African-American migrants to the city and what kind of jobs they might have. And it just became really interesting. There were so many strange jobs. And um, I had no idea that uh, Detroit had miles and miles of salt mines underneath the city. Yeah. Well, I knew about the global financial crisis, mm-hmm. but not about the Great Migration. And that's when people came and worked in the salt mine, and one of your characters did. Mm-hmm. And I sort of had heard about the 67 urban riots, mm-hmm. but there was a term that I didn't know, and that was white flight. Huh. Mm-hmm. What was that? So white flight um, is a really a word, a kind of catch-all word to use, uh, the decades really starting in the 50s through the 70s in a lot of urban centers in the United States where um, African-Americans, a lot of them migrants from the South to the North or to the West, um, wanted, you know, in search of better opportunities, better schools for their children, they moved to these Northern cities and they wanted to live in the neighborhoods where there were better resources. They didn't want to live like in, you know, these tenements and in these slums. So as they got a better better income from uh, better paying jobs, they would try to move into these neighborhoods. And in the beginning, a lot of times they would not be able to get loans. No one would be, no one would be willing, the white residents of the neighborhood would not be willing to sell them homes. But then as they sort of found chinks in that armor and were able to break down those barriers and move into those neighborhoods, what happened was the white people just moved away. They And sometimes people would just leave their house before they sold it. They would rent it out for a while. They would take a loss. They were they were just they refused to integrate and that happened in almost every major urban area in the United States um and that's how then we got a term after white flight which was inner city meaning a bad thing you know you have inner city youths all of a sudden which is like a code word for black you know youths but in the beginning it was just african americans actually trying to uh become part of the the promise of integration mm, right thank you for that Mm-hmm. Now, the other, um, so so Detroit being in a city, and especially East Side Detroit, is that correct? That yes. East Side's, um, well, how would you describe it now? Um, 
Detroit now is a city that has been, it's greatly depopulated um, at its largest. It was um, over a million people, almost 2 million people. And now it's less than 700,000 people. And so it's a, it's a very like a city with sprawl. It's not a tight kind of compact city uh, as far as square miles, like say Manhattan or New York is. Um, it's a city that was built around the automobile industry. Mm. So it's got like big avenues and just wide, wide blocks. And so as you can imagine, if you have a, a lot less people looking living there, there are just um, swaths of the city that are in disrepair and um, houses that are uh, derelict. But there's always been pockets of Detroit that have, sort of thrived and that have survived various economic changes and those neighborhoods are still thriving. And um, there is a lot of redevelopment happening right now in downtown and mid in the midtown areas. Mm. I liked how one of your characters described it. Now, this was Detroit back in 2008. Ghetto, dilapidated and run down. But then more in the speech that would be used, post-zombie apocalypse. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, post-zombie apocalypse. that (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's um, a character uh, sort of jokingly a a young man who who reads a lot of comic books who says that um, that's what it reminds him of and I think that's sort of my own kind of tongue-in-cheek nod to the way that um, a lot of people the city reminds them to me it doesn't because I'm so interested in history and I'm so interested I see the buildings and I don't see just like despair and strangeness, I see stories. Um, but there was, there's been a lot of uh, kind of more of the sci-fi and a supernatural um, assigned to it. There was that movie with uh, Tilda Swinton, Swinton, a vampire movie, The Only Lover, Lovers Left Alive. And it certainly played up on the, the eerie kind of ghost town qualities of the city. Mm. Well, this brings us to a particular house and the title of the book. The Turner House. Mm-hmm. And that's where Francis has brought his wife Viola and four of their kids in 1950. Uh, Angela Flawney has told their story in a split narrative covering two historical times. What were the times? So there was, um, in the beginning, the book was all supposed to be in the present day, which is 2008, which is we're sort of in the midst and of the global financial crisis and um, the mortgage crisis in the States. And um, more specifically for Detroit, it's a period where their current mayor is like embroiled in a political scandal that will end in him going to prison, actually. Um, And it's the kind of early days of the rise of Barack Obama as a viable uh, presidential candidate. Um, so I thought all of the book was going to take place during one spring and during that that period of time, I thought there was enough there. Um, but the more that I researched about the early days of kind of, you know, black life in the city of Detroit, the more I just became really fascinated by it and all of the ways that they overcame the barriers to home ownership in particular. And I wanted to tell that story, too. So I decided to have these sections that focused on the first Turners to be in the city, which is uh, Francis and Viola in the 40s. So you see kind of the the middle, uh, the war era production that happened in the city, which really helped to grow its population and its middle class and what role that uh, black migrants played in that. And now in 2008, you've got this this reason for the 13 Turner kids who grew up in that house to come together with all their great uh, their, their grandchildren and, and the decision what's the decision they have to make well their house is um severely underwater as people say it is um worth about a tenth of what they owe um so they 
it's worth less than $4,000 and they owe about $40,000 on the house. And that's not, in 2008, that was not impossible to happen in the city of Detroit. And then if you add sort of back property taxes, you could actually owe more than that. Um, So they have to make a decision. This house is in great condition. They've kept it in great conditions because it has a lot of sentimental value, but it doesn't have a lot of actual value, financial value. And so they... um, that's a decision that has to be made what to do with this house to kind of walk away from it, try to sort, short sell it to somebody, I don't know who, somebody who might want to buy it, or to pay down that debt, even though there's no promise that they'll ever have a house that's worth that much again. So making agreement between the 13 siblings would be as difficult as individually creating them. Right. <laughs> you, said, you said you started out with, with the youngest, Leela. Mm-hmm. Um how did, did you know you were going to give us so many brothers and sisters? Well, my father is uh, the fifth of 13. And so I had this character, Layla, first. And I started to think about um, why she would not want anyone to know that she's sneaking around this house on the east side of the city, a house that ostensibly she has a right to live in, right? And so then I thought about what could her role in her family be? And the more that I thought about her being the youngest, the more I thought it was also an opportunity to um, explore a certain family dynamic I had not read about before, um, and that is a really large family, which was something that I think certainly affected uh, the way that I grew up um, as a result of it affecting the way that my father grew up. And so um, it seems like an opportunity to, one thing that happens when you write a book, especially your first book, you don't know if you're ever going to get to write a second (laughs) book. So then you decide, okay, well, I'm going to explore a lot of my various obsessions um, because this might be the only go I have at this thing. And so I decided, well, I'll also explore what it's like to be a part of a really big family. And it is. That's the first thing First thing we see in this book is a family tree. Mm-hmm. But I must say, Angela, that I so got to know all of these siblings so well individually, I never had to refer back to that family tree. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> the story doesn't start with Layla, the youngest, though. It starts with... Chacha Charles, mm-hmm. the uh, oldest, he's a truck a truck driver. Yes, and he has an accident. Now, what caused this accident? Well, um, <laughs> it depends on who you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Chacha believes that he saw a haint. A haint. Yes, which um, haint is a southern co- colloquialism for a ghost. Um, depending on what sort of folklore you follow um, in the American South, it could be that a, a, a haint is really just like any old ghost. It could be that an, a haint is particularly a ghost that seeks some sort of retribution. It could be that a haint, haint is more of like a trickster ghost um, that, you know, might do things to you that are inconvenient for like quick laughs. But um, I envisioned in this book a haint that is more of a kind of it depends on who sees who sees it it's um i try to leave it a little bit up to interpretation what is the what are the motives of this uh spirit and even who that it's also up to interpretation whether it's real or not um mm-hmm. and so he believes that he the reason he had an accident is because th- he had a visitation from this hate but this isn't the only time he's seen a hate no it's not he also saw the hate when he was 14, he believes. And at that point, all of his younger sis- siblings also believed they saw it, but they were younger than him. And yeah. so they perhaps can't be trusted. And the father that he admires so much mm-hmm. keeps on saying, there's no hates in there Detroit. There ain't no hates in Detroit, yes. There ain't no hates in Detroit. Mm-hmm. So we're left with a puzzle there. But it's a puzzle that takes um, 
Chacha out of his environment, it takes him to a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And it's this whole bringing up memories that this psychologist sort of asks him to do that really questions his own dynamic within the family too. Yes. Um, I was very interested when I was uh, working on this book and just thinking about um, how being part of a big family as you age, how that can both be a help and a hindrance to making like meaningful connections and friendships outside of the family mm. because you, you have this like built in support system ostensibly, but you also have a built in group of people who think they know everything about you and who are not necessarily open to you changing and growing and becoming someone new. They kind of, they've, they've made a decision about what sort of person you are and that's who you are, right? You can get mm-hmm. kind of typecast within your own family, which is why some people don't like to go home. There, there could be other b- reasons, but one is they don't want to see me for the person I am now, right? They're very interested in seeing me as a person I was 10 years ago or whatever. And so for Chacha, I was interested in him having someone to talk to who does not have those preconceived beliefs about him and who is sees his life as interesting and unique and not as mundane and unextraordinary. But his wife, Tina, is mm-hmm. most unimpressed <laughs> going to um, Alice, the psychologist. Yes. So there's um, there's many reasons for that. So she's not necessarily opposed to counselling, but she's interested in, uh, she's very involved in her church. Mm. And so I can imagine that if they, if Chacha expressed to her a need to talk to someone, he, she would say, absolutely, you should talk to our pastor, right? So mm. she's not opposed to talking to people about, you know, emotional issues one might have. But she is suspicious of the transactional nature. She's suspicious of paying the person for one. And she's just suspicious of, um, I think, the the age of uh, mm. Alice, his therapist, and also um, her her background is is not one that is religious, which Tina finds suspicious. Like, why would you... Why would anybody yeah. want to go to someone who didn't believe in the spiritual for help with spirits? Absolutely. It makes no sense <laughs> That's to her. A quote. Another quote. This is also Tina talking uh, to her husband, um, Chacha. Sooner or later, you're going to realise that just because a Turner thinks a thing is normal doesn't mean it is. Not at all. And you sort of think, you get this whole feeling, there's mm, this whole, is the hate real? You know, it's very, very real to uh, Chacha. But he's the leader of the family. He's the paragon of propriety, mm-hmm. is Angela's words. So why would he feel abandonment and humiliation? But that we're not going to go into. <laughs> You've got to read the book to work that one out. All through this book, we, we feel the whole sense of the Turners. Their blood is thicker than water. But in that blood, can there be a certain amount of addiction that's also going with the DNA? Mm. Um, yeah, that's another question that I... I, I wanted to be raised by a character but I also wanted um, to explore perhaps the ways that we can so the, the character who um, it's Cha-Cha who believes that everyone in his family has like an addictive nature mm. and he lists uh, his father drinking he lists um, well he doesn't even really know but, but he should list if he did know oh, um, yes. Layla's gambling which is serious yeah. and real um, but he lists his um, his other sisters, like yeah. an interest in health and health foods and he, his own wife and his mother's interest in uh, selling things at flea markets. Mm. Um, 
part of that, the reason why I wanted that character to be the one who voices that concern is because he's obviously more judgmental than most. <laughs> so some of the things he lists as addictions are just hobbies. But there is also, I think, um, in a, in a, I was very interested in this book in creating a family that had a unique way of dealing with conflict and a new, unique way of uh, communicating secrets. And part of the the thing that I think troubles the individual Turner characters is that they don't really have a way to be vulnerable around each other. And so they do turn to these other sort of outlets to deal with anxiety and perhaps depression and things like that. I didn't want to put too fine a point on it and make it seem like it is a hereditary thing necessarily, but it is something that they don't uh, they have that in common, that they are very hesitant to be vulnerable, even when other siblings give them an opening to be, which happens with especially the character Layla. She, um, her sister Marlene gives her an opening mm-hmm. to be honest, and she still just doesn't feel comfortable doing it. Um, and so I certainly did think that in some ways, because they're not willing to be vulnerable around each other, they end up turning to all these other preoccupations um, as like outlets. I thought the un- the other character that we got to know that was a family friend, was David. Mm-hmm. And he was really quite different, you know, and Layla appreciated things about him that he, um, instead of wanting everything, he did something really unusual. He meditated mm-hmm. and that meditation made him happy to be alone. It's sort of this aloneness is is rather scary too, I think, for her because mm-hmm. she's always had people. Absolutely. So through the book, we get little glimpses of each of the brothers and sisters' lives. Francie, 25 years a teacher until obesity led to her health crisis. And then the surgery, and she was half her size. But she it also changed the way that she felt about her family. You know, Angel, I just sort of thought you could write a whole book about each of these, each of the siblings. It was just fascinating. Marlene, now she's divorced, but her child ended up going with the father. Mm-hmm. We don't know why or how. And uh, Bernice, another, do- another sibling, she's spoken with, uh, with Viola, the mother, about, and Viola was saying that she'd actually seen Haints in um, De- Detroit, mm-hmm. although mm, that's what the family have said and, said. and Brother Russell's, his embarrassment that his oldest son had grown up to be pro-prison, anti-big government and libertarian-leaning Republican. <laughs> <laughs> you had some fun with that. A little bit, yes. There was a little di- Donald Trump um, bit in there too. <laughs> oh, yes, this was... Pre-current iteration. My gosh, who knew? I did not know. Um, Perhaps he would not have been mentioned. (laughs) And if it wasn't for the military, so many of these brothers and sons wouldn't have an occupation. Mm -hmm. Mm. That is a reality of um, specifically Detroit, but um, several big cities in the sort of post- uh, post-industrial, I guess, years of like the 50s and 60s, that was um, employment that was available. Mm -hmm. And um, so when factories and automobile um, plants were closing in Detroit in the late 60s, early 70s, um, that was also kind of our current era of uh, ramped up militarization. Mm -hmm. And so those were um, opportunities that my own family did sort of benefit from absolutely look i'm speaking with angela flournoy about her book the turner house the book 
culminates in the spring birthday party where all the Turner clan come together and a decision about the house has to be made. But spring is also the season of regrowth and it's this spring that Brianne, one of the uh, granddaughters, broke with her mother and knew her adult life began. And some of the other characters also have this whole regrowth. Was that uh, intentional to sort of set, set about it at spring? I think the first reason I set the book in spring was because uh, Michigan winters are terrible. <laughs> and I was living in Iowa City and I started writing the book at the tail end of a terrible Iowa winter. And um, I just couldn't bear to write about cold weather. So it was as simple as that, that I was like, I can't go back to the snow right now. I cannot do it. But then I did start to think about it as a, a season of change and a season of sort of radical change. And as you say, kind of regrowth. And um, I tried to figure out what that would mean on an individual as well as, well as a collective level for the whole family. Ah, uh, right. Well, it worked. Thank you. <laughs> Some of the um, other comments from the books. I, I, a woman with no options is waiting for a man to come by and ruin her. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, I probably not so directly have gotten that um, message from my mother <laughs> throughout my life. Um, and it, not, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a man, but just um, the when you put yourself in a situation where you don't have, you're not... Um, working towards anything in your life and you don't have any concrete goals however modest you put yourself in a position to have someone else d dictate what your goals should be or what your life should be um and that's dangerous so the turner house a book about self-discovery that you can never be too old to learn something about yourself cha-cha returned to the turner house to face his haints but instead met his own kin who betrayed him, hurt him, and confused him. Mm, not bad, not bad at all. Um, well, it's been a delight to chat with you, but I know you're going to be doing things at the Melbourne Writers Festival. And yes. I think I think that you start off on Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock. And this is open to anybody out there because there's a lot of uh, sessions that Angela's doing that have already been sold out. But this one's open to anyone, and I really, I'm, I'm going to be there. ABC um, Radio National Books is doing a live program, and it's got Anita Heiss, and anybody listening to 3CR would know about Anita, and Emily Maguire. Now, Emily has been in here quite a, a few times talking about raunch culture. Now, this is the the raunch, the, the 1930s feminism, and Oh, wow. You're going to have a wonderful time chatting with these women. I'm very excited. Oh, th th I think you yes. <laughs> And later on the day, but not at uh, Fed Square. This is out at Footscray. You're going to be talking about Detroit stories for the working class. Mm -hmm. mm. So if you're out and about in Footscray, find out about that one. I think it's going to be an absolute gem. And then the Turner House. You're actually going to be speaking about the Turner House on Sunday at 4 p.m. Are you going to say anything that you haven't said on this program? Tons of stuff. I'm going stuff. to say all kinds of things, yes. I, I <laughs> because it really is. It's, it's like its own, um, 
character in the book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's there. It's got rooms. It's got colours. It's mm. it's got ghosts, perhaps. Oh, ghosts, perhaps. What house hasn't got a ghost? And here I'm going to get Angela to read. Humans haunt more houses than ghosts do. Men and women assign value to brick and mortar, link their identities to mortgages paid on time. On frigid winter nights, young mothers walk their fussy babies from room to room, learning where the rooms catch drafts and where the floorboards creak. In the warm damp of summer, fathers sit on porches, sometimes worried and often tired, but comforted by the fact that a roof is up there providing shelter. Children smudge up walls with dirty handprints, find nooks to hide their particular treasure, or hide themselves if need be. We live and die in houses, dream of getting back to houses, take great care in considering who will inherit the houses when we're gone. Yes, so it's it's people that are in houses, not just haints. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, this book, it's your debut adult novel, but you've written YA novels. No. No. I've just written this one. You've just written this one? Mm-hmm. Well, well done to start out with this. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned that it took you quite a long time to write it, mm-hmm. four years. And, yeah. Um, how did you get it published? You know, sort of, it's so hard. Um, I was fortunate enough, I went to graduate school for writing. And the program I went to in um, the Ira Writers Workshop one of my teachers uh, was uh, a novelist who I deeply admire, Marilyn Robinson, and her agent just happened to be coming to town. And I was um, able to meet with her. And I had met with her two years before, and I told her I was working on this book. And I only had 15 pages, and I lied, and I told her I had 200 pages. <laughs> but when she came back, I had the 200 pages. It only took two years. Um, that was not, of course, this book is about 350 pages. So it wasn't the whole thing, but it was enough for her to be interested in working with me. And so then... Um, I worked on it for another year with her, and then um, she had an idea of a few editors who might be interested, and there were two people who were very seriously interested um, in the United States, and I decided to go with um, Houghton Milton Harcourt, who published me in the United States. Um, So for me, I was fortunate enough where it wasn't that, um, it wasn't sort of blind pitching. Um, I just happened to kind of be at the right place at the right time. At that first time, did Mm -hmm. you have the historical reference in it? Not the 13 pages? No. I was afraid of the parts in the 40s. So what I gave um, my agent, um, Ellen, was just all in 2008. And it wasn't until about six months later um, where I sent her another draft and she was just like, oh, well, Mm. this Mm. is better. (laughs) Mm. She had no idea that there were these other parts that I was thinking about writing, but I was afraid to write. Look, um, those historical bits, I think, so settle the book. But uh, with anybody, I know if their mother has died, mm-hmm. there's always questions you want to ask them later mm-hmm. because quite often parents don't give all the information and especially when you think about Leela and how the information she gave to her own daughter mm-hmm. was was so prized out of her. Right. And it was a surprise to Leela that that was the thing that her daughter really wanted More than money, more than anything else. She just wanted to know, like, what was her history? What were the circumstances that brought her birth, you know, along? And it was something I think people sometimes take for granted. Um, Parents, and I have a sister, a younger sister, who's 15 years younger than me. 
I take for granted how valuable information is to a young person who's trying to like understand their place within their family or in the world. And I try to be aware of that with my sister and not sort of glaze over things that happened when before she was born and be detailed because it is valuable. It helps people get a sense of their personal story. This is why I felt for Cha Cha. You know, he was never his own man. Mm -hmm. He was always surrogate father to the youngest and then his own, you know, he was father to his own. And you realise that he he really hadn't had a... A flare or oh, well, but he, but his responsibility was such, wasn't it? You know, like Absolutely, you, like you to your daughter, your younger sister. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, there's so much in families, aren't there? <laughs> A whole bunch. Yes. And then, if you haven't got them, like Alice, mm-hmm. you think, oh, I wonder what it's like. Well. Angela Flournoy, you've really given me a fabulous insight into a big family. Oh, thank you. It's (laughs) been my pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Do you ever wonder what it'd be like to be an only child? Um... I I don't know. I, I take for granted. I imagine, I hope if I was an only child, I still have, I would still have a lot of cousins. I have some cousins who are only children, but they have a lot of cousins. So it doesn't feel so much like they're only children. Do you mm-hmm. have these family get-togethers? These uh, yep, absolutely do. And do you have dancing? Sometimes. as I feel like as we get older, um, we need more children. Somebody needs, I don't know who, not me. Somebody <laughs> needs to have these kids so that we can watch them dance. Yeah, watch them dance because that was lovely. The, right. the Turner Party downstairs, mm-hmm. I thought that was great, with Lonnie. Now, Lonnie, Lonnie was a bit of an addictive character, but I love the, um, he was a musician and it was kind of like a middle child. And as a boy, he was a delphonic, pre-funk, pseudo-gospel outfit music player (laughs) yes which is basically any music that was being played in you know 1960s Detroit he just kind of glommed onto it in other words (laughs) look fantastic once again um Angela will be at Fed Square at two o'clock on Saturday then out at Footscray at four o'clock and then on Sunday back at Fed Square at four o'clock do catch her do catch this book Fantastic. Thank you very much, Angela. Thank you so much for having me. And I should say the book, of course, is The Turner House. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.